0: Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, and Kidrelemur, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goem. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimeber, King of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedrilamur, Ketil- but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedrilamur and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtora, k the Zumen in Ham the Enim in sheva Keriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El-Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan-Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboiim, and the king of Bela. That is, Zoar went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kidrilaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goem, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Solom and Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Ishkol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. After his return from the defeat of Kittler Kittler (laughs) and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Ishkel, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that is good and true, that it is a firm foundation, that um, that it holds forth through all ages and time. May you speak through Ryan today, may his words fall away, and your word hold fast in our hearts. May we be in awe and wonder of who you are and your word. Continue to work in our hearts, open our hearts and minds up to what your spirit would have to say to us today through your word. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.
1: Amen. Y'all can be seated. Um, So... If you're, you heard Genesis 14, you're probably like, what in the world is going on? Or maybe you could just put all the pieces together. I'm going to do my best to do that for you today. But the, the main thing that I want you to see is that what's happening in Genesis 14 is predominantly about God. And then it's about what's happening in Abram's heart. All of the other pieces of the story are just putting Abram's heart on display and what God is doing in it. So uh, if, don't, don't lose uh, sight of that in the middle of it. And, and that, that's what's on display. And, and, you know, whatever battle you may be facing right now in your life, I just want, I want you to know that the, really what the Lord is most concerned with, whatever that is for you, is your heart. I want to read Proverbs 4.23 for us as we, as we kick off this morning. It's a, it's a familiar proverb to us, I think. And uh, Solomon writes this. He says, above all else, <clears throat> guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of, Of life, The Bible tells us that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how much your circumstances seem to dominate who you are and the way that you're behaving and what you're pursuing, that that the real dominion that we ought to be concerned about is what is inside of us because it controls everything. It controls our joy. It, It controls the hope of happiness and contentment in this world. And the Scriptures tell us that because of God's Spirit living inside of us, that we have the, the power to actually guard our heart against, against lies and unbelief. And God gives us a spirit to do that. And it's, it's so crucial because your heart is the source of life. That's what this proverb is saying. That it, the wellspring of life, the source of life inside of us is our hearts. And so, and so the good news is, is that the Lord goes after our hearts too. And and for me, even even every Sunday morning when I come in here, the Lord is going after my heart, and He's going after my heart so that I'll come to this place of surrender and worship, so that I can live more faithfully for His kingdom. Because if my heart is chasing other things, it's not living faithfully for His kingdom. So I just want you to remember that as we as we look in today, because what we're going to see in Abram's life in his heart is that worship and mission are inextricably linked for Abraham. And, and, I, and I, what I'm beginning to see is the same is true for every follower of Christ, is that worship and mission are inextricably linked. Like, if you were to think about the, the human heart, the human heart has four chambers, I think. Some of you nurses and doctors tell me. I think it's four chambers. But if you were to think about the heart divided into, and it had two chambers, the heart of faith. The heart of faith would have two chambers. It would be, on one side, it would be worship surrendering ourselves to God, worshiping him with all we are, and mission. And it would beat in sync like that when we're in a good place, walking faithfully with God. Worship leads to mission, mission leads to worship. And so as, we, as you think about it like that, um, I, 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 want, I want to encourage you um, to, to prioritize what God is doing inside of you in worship so that God can do more through your life as you walk faithfully with him throughout this week. So as we look at the context of where we're at in Genesis 14, if you're new with us, in Genesis 13, we've got this scenario where Abram and Lot separate. Lot, to, to remind you, Lot is Abram's nephew, Um and he's, he's more like a surrogate son than you would think of maybe your nephew. I don't know. So he's, he's a part of the family. He left the land of Ur when God called him out uh, to, to the promised land. Lot goes with Abram. And there's this situation where, where uh, Abram and Lot go down to Egypt in their unbelief and God calls them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He, he basically pushes them out. Well, then they go back to the place where God's voice was clear. The oaks by this guy named Mamre. That this guy named Mamre owns in the region of Hebron, and uh, and so they're there. God's voice is clear, but they have so much stuff because they got so rich in Egypt that they have to separate. And Abram steps back and he says, Lot, I'm going to let you make the first choice because I'm going to trust God to take care of me. Last time I tried to take care of myself, it didn't go well. I ended up in Egypt. And so Lot chooses, what we talked about last week is Lot chooses the land that borders Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you know anything about the Bible, East, not good. Sodom and Gomorrah, not good. But Lot looks beyond that, and he says, you know, the influence of those people are not going to affect me. I'm going to go because that's the land that looks good. Doesn't consult the Lord on it. And so then we have this scenario today. Well, you fast forward to Genesis chapter 15, and God reiterates his his promise to Abram. We're going to look at this next week, but the predominant emotion that his heart is feeling is anxiety and fear. And you're thinking, man... Abram, you just like kicked butt and took names, like for all these kings, like, what are you fearful about? Well, he's fearful because he doesn't have a son, and God promised him a son, and so he's anxious, and so we see God meet him in the midst of that in Genesis 14 here. The only way that I know to help you make sense of any of this is to pull up a map, because there's a lot of uh, crazy places here that are unfamiliar to us. This is the lay of the land. These kings that, that we're talking about, they come, they come from the northeast. Um, yeah, it's, it's the, the northern forces are led by Elam, Shinar, uh, Elisar, and Goim are basically most likely kind of vassal kings underneath Elam. He's kind of like the, the, the main dog. And, and so what's happened is is that they're making their way down to El Peron because they, they got to take care of some business because those five kings in the valley, the one that Lot fell into with Sodom and Gomorrah, well, they're no longer paying tribute or respect uh, or honor to, to the kings that they're, they're kind of serve under uh, Elam. And so they, they've got to go down and rattle their cages and get them back in line because that's the way... Uh, that it, that it works is that if you if you let these guys get out of hand, they're going to come and attack them. And so, and so what happens is that they go down and they they have this battle. Um, they end up taking Lot. That that that's a key uh, feature in this. Lot, Abram's nephew, and uh, and they take him up to uh, toward Kadesh Barnea. At this point, Abram. <clears throat> He catches word because there's that guy that escapes, right? He escapes and he goes and he finds Abram who's under the oak's, uh, oak trees at this guy named Mamre's property. And he's you know, waiting on God's promise to be fulfilled. Well, Abram then gathers these 318 men that he's got. Evidently, Abram has been preparing for a season like this. Abram goes by night. They go up north to Dan. Um, and then they, they intercept these... So get this straight. There are nine kings, um, at this point, you know, four from the north, five from the south, and they are all, they're all captured. Abram with 318 men. This is, this is like bigger than David and Goliath, okay? But nobody talks about this. This is incredible what God does through Abram. So Abram goes and he, 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 he not only intercepts them and Dan, he goes farther north, up north of Damascus, and he just routes them with 300 people. And now, because of this, what happens? All of these people, all of these things, they all belong to who? They all belong to Abram. So Abram comes back down uh, to, to the place where God's call was clear in the promised land. And, uh, and then he's greeted by two different kings. One of them uh, is the king of Sodom. And one of them is the king of Salem or Jerusalem. The king of righteousness. That guy's name is Melchizedek very mysterious character we're going to hit at the edges of it today and i'm going to do my best to explain that to you but that's the mission that's just happened that's what's happened in genesis chapter 14 it's the first international war that we know about and and uh and god was victorious in it you know i was thinking we we love a good mission though don't we how many, how many of you maybe watched a movie in the last month that was about some kind of rescue mission or some kind of crazy thing? You know, we love a good mission. We, we, it's a great story. It's exciting. I was thinking about in 2018, the rescue mission of that soccer team in Thailand. Anybody remember that? You remember like, it was like two weeks long. And you're like looking at your phone, looking at all the details and like, oh man, the Navy SEALs are there, you know? And they're, they, now they, they're taking an anesthesiologist back in the cave and, and now they're, they, they found out this, that, that the best way to rescue these guys is, is to sedate them and then go with the, the five-hour dive out of the, out of the cave. That's so precarious that they have to be sedated because they might not live if they're not. I mean, this crazy rescue mission. That two, I think Navy SEALs ended up giving their lives for to save these kids. We can get so uh, enthralled with the mission that we can forget the purpose of the mission. What's the purpose of that mission for those boys? To bring them back home to mom and dad, right? For them to live, for them to have life, fellowship. The mission of God, church, is to bring his people home. Is to bring the prodigals home. And the thing that I don't want you to forget is that the mission of the church is to join the mission of God to bring God's people home into a right relationship with Him. And so here's our big idea for where we're going today mission and worship are the two chambers of the heart of faith. I want you to picture that heart that's beating. I was reading about the heart just because I'm not real smart and I didn't really know this, but you know that your heart pumps like, it's like something like 2,000 gallons of blood a day or something, it's crazy how much blood flows through your heart. And so I just want you to picture when we're in a right relationship with God, worship and mission are just beating back and forth and that's what leads to health and faithfulness on God's mission. So let's look at our first thing. I got two points here that I'm gonna make from Abram's life and his journey. The heart of the mission is to set the captives free. Remember what Jesus said he came to do? Isaiah 61, he quotes it in Luke 4. what he say? I've come to, I've come to set the, proclaim liberty to the captives, right? The church is on the mission of Jesus to proclaim liberty to the captives. And, and what I want to ask you as we look at this is do you see the captives around you? Do you see the captives around you? Because what we're going to see with the life of Abram As he saw that Lot was captive, physically captive, but also spiritually captive. Let's read this. Let me remind you of what's happened here. Uh, Genesis 14, verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. And when he says his possessions, he means tons of people and tons of stuff, like tons and tons, really rich. Don't just think he just kidnapped Abram or lot. It's, it's a lot of people and a lot of stuff. Verse 13, then one who escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Anor. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that, the kinsmen had been taken captive. Immediately, what's he do? He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. And most of these guys probably came from where? Egypt. Most of these people, these were Egyptians because he didn't have any kids. Most of these people probably came from Egypt with him. And he went and pursued as far as Dan and he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to, to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions And also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. He brought everybody back. Now, Abram was on a mission. There was no doubt in his mind that to worship God was to live on his mission. The first time that he worshiped God, when God called him out of the land of Ur, he had to to follow him, right? If he were to just say, yeah, you're the one true God, but he didn't obey him, did did he really understand who God was and, and what he was calling him to? It didn't matter to Abram. How foolish Lot was that he made an unwise decision, but Lot was like his son. He was committed to seeing him rescued. Church, we're on the same mission as Abram to see the prodigals rescued from eternal destruction. And you know, as you as you think about this, I want you to think about what purpose does worship have in your life? Is is worship to you, is it an event or is it a lifestyle? And worship, when you encounter God through worshiping him, what does it do to your life? i want to read a quote to you from a great book that I love uh, to recommend. It's called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. Grab it if you don't have it. Here's a quote from the book. He says this, Worship works from the top down. You might say, in worship we don't come to show God our devotion or give him our praise, but we are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us from the top down in in a formative way. He's forming us as we're in here, church. He says, worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It's where God does something to us. Do you come in here each and every week expecting God to do something to you? That's a question we got to ask. Or do we come in here and just kind of pay homage and go on with our mission? Because when we encounter the living God and we encounter his word, it changes us. We are conformed to his image, not him conformed to our image. And he goes on to say, worship is the heart of discipleship because <clears throat> it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. So Worship, recalibrating our hearts, showing us what should matter in our lives. As we surrender our lives to the Almighty God, we see that we are sinners that are undeserving of grace and mercy, but God is so gracious that he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins and to save us from eternal destruction, and now we owe him everything. So every, every New Testament letter that you read talks about the gospel, what I just described to you, and then it talks about the lifestyle of a gospel messenger. The book of Ephesians, for example, first three chapters, all about the gospel. Next four, how does the gospel change you? Is an encounter with God in worship changing and reforming your life? That, that's, what, that's what's at, at stake here. And, and one of those things, the mission is that we're formed more into his image. So if you think about, I may be getting ahead of my notes, but I don't care. Um, you think about uh, John chapter 17, John 17, 3 says uh, that this is eternal life, that they know the, the, um, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's eternal life. That's the whole deal right there. He goes on in this high priestly prayer to say not only that, but to say that, um, that, that um, because he was sent in the world and we, we are image bearers of Jesus, that we are now sent into the world. So our, our mission is, as we worship the one true God who gives us eternal life, is to be sent in the world with purpose. But many times we are tempted to believe that we're just in this world, just kind of floating along doing our own thing. But church, you have purpose. If you if you are a follower of Jesus, you have eternal purpose week in week out and how you and how you relate to the world around you. You know, I, I think about Abram and and how was he so, how was he so ready to respond. To his nephews capture how was he so ready to respond with these 318 men i, th- I think abram probably lived in this place where he remembered what it was be- what it was like to be lost i want you to think back in your life maybe you're, maybe you're a follower of jesus and and you can think about what it was like in the bc days before christ you know what i'm talking about some of you had a little bit longer runway there than others that's okay but think about what it was like to be lost in the people that showed you grace and people that showed you mercy and the people that were long-suffering with you. I think Abram lived that way because he, here's a man who gets the promise, follows it for a little bit, and then ends up in Egypt. He knows what it's like. And, and when we keep the gospel front and center, it shows us that our mission is not to judge people who are lost, but it's to go after them. So many times we let lost people bruise us a little bit, and we just stop. We just give up. And I don't think that's what God's calling his church to. Abram was aware of the the, the battle that waged war around him, both physically and spiritually. And 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 for us, I think we ought to be reminded of that. Because when we are, we live differently. Listen to what Peter said. Peter, Peter, if a guy if there was a guy in the Bible who knew uh what it was like uh to 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 think too highly of himself, it was Peter, right? He's the guy that said, you know, my you know, My Lord and God, I'll never, you know, Jesus, I'll never forsake you. I'll never betray you. And then then Jesus calls him out on it, and he does. And so Peter reflects back, and he writes this letter that's included in the scriptures. It's it's divinely inspired, and and it's a letter to the churches, and he writes this about how we ought to live on mission. Listen to what he says. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. In other words, don't think too highly of yourself, and keep your eyes open around you. Be sober minded and be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, right now you and I are in the cage of a lion. And he wants nothing more than to use anything in your life to destroy your soul. Peter goes on to give us good news, though. He says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I was reminded from a friend of mine, Colossians 2, says that, that, that Jesus has disarmed the enemy. Disarmed him. Taken his gun away. Like no power anymore. But, but here's the thing is, I don't wake up in the morning each day knowing that the devil devil is gunning for my soul. Because if I did, I would live differently. You would live differently as well. But here's here's the beauty of it, is that when we abide in Christ, the enemy is disarmed. He has no power over us. I think Abram was a man that lived like that, especially in Genesis 14 here. He was getting it right then. He understood what it was like to be on his guard and to be ready to respond when God calls you. But so many times the church is lulled and and is asleep on the mission because we mess around with food and drink and pleasure and we forget that people are eternally perishing all around us. And we think, oh, that's bad for them. Church, you need to be on mission for your own sanctification. It does something in you. When the the two chambers of the heart of worship and mission are beating fully in us. Jesus, what was Jesus' mission, if you could sum it up? What would you say? Luke chapter 19, he made it clear to his disciples. He says this For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was the mission that Jesus was after. He would go on to say things like this. It's not the healthy that need a physician, but it's the sick. I'm looking for sick people who are lost and know they're lost. And so so that's what Jesus was after. Well, at the end of his life on earth, when he ascended to heaven, he, he left his disciples with a mission to go and make disciples of him, right? And to teach and obey and to baptize all that he's commanded because he's with us to this day. And so at New City Church, this is why... This is why our mission is to make mature and multiply disciple makers. Because the answer is depth, not width. If it was width, Jesus would have preached a lot more sermons like this and not spent time with a, a handful of guys. Abram is mimicking what we see Jesus doing in the future. He's going deep with these guys, training them for the battle that's at hand. Because worship leads to mission for our lives. Jude writes about this too. I'll just... I'll close up this point with this. Jude writes about this too. And I want you to notice how he talks about life on mission. He first talks about his relationship or our relationship with the living God of the universe through Christ. And then our responsibility from that. He says this, but you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. that that God has so entrusted us with his spirit and his word that we have a responsibility to keep ourselves in the love of God. Did you know that? That God's sovereignty doesn't mean you just float around, but he has given you a certain degree of power to keep yourself in the love of God, is what he's saying here. So how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? We keep our heart worshiping God, trusting that he's conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus. And then what happens in the person that that is pursuing worship above all else of God? He says that this is how they live. These are characteristics of their life. That we have mercy on those who doubt. Do you have any people in your life right now that are doubting? I do. Some of us in the room are, are doubting right now. And so our mission is to you. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. I always thought that the fire snatchers would be a good band name. So get on that if you want to. Literally, I mean, snatching people out. What a vivid image of life on mission. Snatching people out of the fire. Show mercy to others without, with fear. Hating even the garments stained by the flesh. You know, sometimes my hatred for sin leads me away from people, I've got to confess. But for Abram, what did it do to him? Let him write to him. See, church, whenever we're worshiping the one true God in a way that is whole and real, we're far less concerned about the shrapnel of chasing lost people and far more concerned about seeing souls rescued. That's what Abram was about. So my question just for you is this. Where's the captivity that surrounds you? Where is it that either in your own heart you're being held captive or those that are around you that you love, they're just in captivity. And what is God calling you to do about it? Is God calling you to enter in? Because what we see with Abram is that he moves toward his brother's captivity, not away from it. And I confess that I prefer a version of Christianity that's far more sanitized than what I see in the scripture. Is God calling you to move toward those that are in captivity now, in bondage to sin? Abram sets a model for us that that indicates that's probably the right path. Second thing we see in this passage is that the goal of mission is the worldwide worship of the one true God. Let me remind you what happens after Abram comes home. After his return from defeat, of Kedlamer, uh, Ked, oh gosh. Kedlamer, there we go. <clears throat> and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out, with, uh, went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him. Melchizedek blesses Abram. He says, blessed be Abram, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be God most high who has delivered you, has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a 10th of everything, Melchizedek. And the king of Sodom is right there with him. And he says, um, I guess he's come out of the the hill country and he didn't fall into a pit. Um, He says, give give the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He's operating with a degree of assertion here. I don't know if you see that. but, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, "I made Abram rich." I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anor, Escol, and Mamre take their share. Here's what we see: is that there are there really two ways that we can respond. To deliverance, when God delivers us, He delivers us through Christ. But we also have those small deliverances from sin, don't we? We experience those as we walk with God. We can respond to them in two ways: we can respond to them with a uh, by by sight or by faith. Uh, the king of Sodom was. It's, this is really interesting. the The temptation that the king of Sodom offers to Abram is a lot like the way that Jesus was tempted in Luke four. Now, let me remind you of who the king of Sodom was. Do you remember? Um, After sin entered the world, uh, Adam and Eve had two boys. What were their names? Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain uh, rose up and killed his brother in a field, and there was a curse that followed this. And and what the scriptures describe is that there were then two seeds that went forth, and we see that even in Genesis three, the seed, the the, the seed uh, of the woman, and then the seed of the serpent were going forth. And what we see here is that the king, that, that Sodom was a dis- like the, the 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 people that lived in the region of Sodom. Were, um, were the offspring of the seed of the serpent. And so this, this, this whole place is just cursed anyway. But the, the way that he speaks to Abram is, is that he comes in and he says, uh, you know, hey, just give me the people, you can keep everything. I mean, last time I checked, when you go, when you go take over an army and you, you kill everybody, I'm pretty sure you get everything, right? So, so he's coming in and he's, he's tempting Abram to live in bondage to him. He's tempting Abram to live with a false set of assumptions that are not the truth. It's the exact same thing that the enemy did to Jesus in Luke chapter 4 when he tempted him with the different things when he, when he said, you know, you know, if you're the son of man, throw yourself off this pinnacle. You know, he just wanted him to prove himself and Jesus kept going back at him with scripture and, sh- and landing squarely on the truth. And I, I think that the, the king of Sodom is an example for us on the temptation that we have to live by sight, to, to surrender our souls to the enemy and really not even realize it just because we don't know the truth. And I, I think this is an example of that. But Abram is in a good place here because there's this other man that's there to meet him, not just the king of Sodom, not just the, the enemy, the seed of the enemy, but Melchizedek, this mysterious man that we see. He's, he's both a priest. And he's a king, but he has no beginning or end. Who is this man? Here's what I see is that, you know, the enemy is always around us. And, you know, John Piper talks about this idea of life on mission being like this. Like, imagine yourself in a bunker and the commander's out like, you know, calling in the shots on a walkie-talkie. He says, prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie. And I I, I see Abram walking with the Lord in such a place in this season of his life where it's like this, there's this, he's surrounded by his enemies, but he's at peace because God is with him. And Melchizedek represents Christ with him. That's what Melchizedek represents. Melchizedek to us represents that God is with us. Melchizedek was like the Holy Spirit to Abram in some degree, right? The fact that God is with him in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the, uh, of the struggle. And, you know, church, I would just say this. If you, if you find, if you, if you try to spend your life avoiding temptation, avoiding the enemy, you can easily find yourself on a mission that is not the mission of God. Because Jesus told us that we were always going to be surrounded by the enemy until he returned, didn't he? He said we we're going to have trouble. He said it was going to be hard, but that he would be with us. Do you spend more time seeking the Lord in worship or trying to run away from the world? Because the only hope that the world has is for the church to be in it and not of it and to pursue lost people. That's the only hope they have. Your worship of Jesus is the only thing that can declaw the prowling enemy that surrounds us. It's the only thing. It's the only thing Jesus could do when he was hungry and he was tempted in Luke 4 was to worship And then what the scripture says at the end of that, that that the enemy left and he wanted to seek him at a a more opportune time. Abram's aware of this battle. His faith is activated. But Melchizedek's very presence shows us the heart of Jesus for us on the mission. God is with us. What we see is, is that Melchizedek is a king He has power to deliver, he has dominion, he has authority, but he's also a priest. What's a priest do in the Bible? A priest intercedes for the people of God, right? They were set up of the tribe of Levi, Um, and, and what they would do is they would offer bloody sacrifices for the forgiveness of God's people's sins, and they would intercede on the people's behalf for God. To God. Uh, and Jesus is the great high priest that we read in the book of Hebrews. Melchizedek is pointing to that. Let me, let me just show you what Hebrews 7 says about Melchizedek because if we only had Genesis 15 and Psalm 110, we would have way more questions than we do after reading this. Here's what Hebrews 7, one says. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed them. And to him, Abram apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But key right here, resembling the son of God, he continues as a priest forever. The former priests, verse 23, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Notice, we always need someone to intercede for us. It's the only way we can be one with God. But they were prevented by death. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the othermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Melchizedek is a picture Of Christ with us in the midst of the battle. And God so loved his people that he gave his son as a sacrifice so that he could intercede forever, so that we could have security, that our sins can never separate us from God again. That's what Jesus is doing, looking like me and you, in the flesh, seated right at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding so that we can be convinced that we'll never be separate from God again because of our sin, because we have faith in him. That's what he's doing. This shows up in Genesis chapter 14 so that we can know that in the midst of the battle, God is with us. And and how how does he show himself to Abram? He brings out bread and wine. He brings out this hospitable meal to Abram to say, hey, weary traveler, rest your soul. God is with you. Does anybody need to hear that this morning? Weary traveler, rest, God is with you. This is exactly what God does for Abram. I'm gonna skip forward to Psalm 23 here, Tana. Um, David hit at the edges of this when he wrote this Psalm for us. And my prayer for us is that this would be our story, church. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they bring comfort to me. Verse five is the key. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I want you to think about that table that was set before Abram in Genesis chapter 14 in the presence of his enemies with his bloodstained garment running for his life, fearful if God was really going to come through or not. I don't know what it is for you today. I don't know what, how you feel the assault of the enemy physically or spiritually, but I know you feel it because you're in this world. Your temptation is gonna be to try to run from it, but you'll never outrun him. The only power we've got is to surrender to the one true God who prepares a a feast before us in the presence of our enemies, a sign of hospitality, a sign of sovereignty, a sign of grace, a sign of power. So with that in mind, we're gonna receive this table today. Let me pray for us. Father, I I, uh, thank you. I thank you that that you are too kind to let us try to deliver ourselves. Lord, I pray that that image of Lot being captured after he thought he knew what was best, I, I pray that we could see ourselves being Lot. I pray that we could see ourselves choosing the land next to Sodom and Gomorrah, thinking that we knew better than the one true God and then paying the price of the consequences for it being in captivity. Lord, when we try to go ways other than what you've called us to go, we will always find ourselves up in captivity. Some of us in this room are very aware of the captivity because we are in it right now. Father, I pray that the spirit of Christ would come upon us today and the captives would be set free. Lord, the only way that we can get out of this eternal struggle that we're in is through worshiping in the presence of our enemy. Lord, I pray that through our worship this morning that the enemy would be declawed, that he'd be disarmed, and then we would see that Jesus Christ reigns supreme and that is enough for us. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.